0: History.
1: Anyway, man, anyway. you know, you got to have a short memory to be a professional athlete sometimes. Like you got to put those horrific misses behind you real fast. Yeah. Because like you said, yeah, he missed like three kicks and 3 minutes of game time and then he finally gets another chance and at the end of overtime and does it man but hey, go cards. First time they've been 5 and oh since the 70s. They weren't yeah. even in Arizona. No, they were. Wild. This is pretty exciting. It's fun. It is exciting. I like Kyler Murray. I like the Cardinals. I like JJ Watt, obviously, it's exciting. Obviously. But my fear is the last time the Cardinals went to the Super Bowl, they did it by blowing the doors off the Packers.
0: well they didn't,
2: I mean, in on the last play, they did. Yeah, like that was a dramatic game. It
1: was all that was an all time great
2: playoff game that was it was a fantastic playoff game because that it, was it aaron Rodgers' right? first
1: yeah and then that's where the strip sack and that's how the cardinals won it but that was aaron Rodgers'
2: first playoff in game the, in the crazy uh you had, reju- uh, had a rejuvenated kurt warner long pass to fitzgerald and then to finish it just the shovel pass to him and he ran mm-hmm. it in
1: no 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 you're <laughs> see that's the problem it's happened to the packers twice where they've had to come back from behind. I'm talking about 2009 when Kurt Warner was still the quarterback. You're when, thinking, when that, you, you're thinking of Carson Palmer, Bruce Arians. Oh my gosh! Yeah, that's right. So that's the problem. Oh. It's happened twice when, when oh, the that, Packers
2: because right, then the Cardinals went on to get just smoked by the Panthers in the next game.
1: Yeah, that was Cam Newton's MVP year. They got both oh, my race gosh. race.
2: Okay, yeah. Whew. Sports are fun.
1: Sports are fun, which I think is a great segue. Welcome to this episode of DadBot History. It's a fantastic are, segue. It's a perfect oh segue. Yeah. All right. It's welcome. It's to be amazing. Yeah. So hope you guys are all doing well. Make sure you guys like, subscribe, follow. See us on YouTube for the full episode. And uh, we're also on TikTok, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. My dog is on the couch right there. Dog's on the couch. Yeah. So we're supported by PETA and uh yeah we are we're down about history and we've got a great episode for you tonight yeah.
2: okay uh, before Jay. we get started i i, I yeah. have to say something um my son my youngest he's 4 mm. uh we're going to brush teeth this tonight and he starts singing uh who let the dogs out and he's like who let the dogs out who who and i'm like cool and then i'm like listen more closely <laughs> so Becoming a father, becoming a parent is this, like, just amazing moment where, like, the world opens up in ways you didn't realize it existed before. Like, all the dangers and and opportunities and hopes and fears and all that stuff, right? Like, yeah. becoming a parent is eye-opening. And there's something of an existential crisis that occurs when you become a parent. Would you agree with that? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, your whole worldview changes, and and that that happens with each child. Like it's like, oh, this is like a whole new thing. Mm-hmm. Um. Anyway, this is this is my last one, my third one, and then I listen more closely to what he's singing. He's not singing "Who Let Dogs Out." He's singing "Who Let the Gods Out." <laughs> okay. And suddenly, I have a wildly new terrifying horrifying existential crisis in my head playing out who let the gods out and i can only imagine my son is this tragic greek figure shaking his fist at mount olympus screaming who let the gods out which of course would be like chronos right like yeah. anyways yeah who
1: let him out of tartarus yeah
2: i love it uh I, and and I was like, you know, it's dogs. And he smiled in a way that he's like, oh no, I I know what I'm saying, father. I know exactly yeah. what I'm doing. He and might be Zeus some... can shove it. <laughs> <laughs> you
1: hear me, Thunderer?
2: Yeah, that's awesome.
1: That's so, so cool, man.
2: That, that that is what it was.
1: I love it. That's a good and story,
2: man. And uh, this last week, I've been doing diplomacy uh, in my classroom again. I saw that. So much fun. Yeah. Even even when I have, um, you know, I've gone from traditionally the seven powers. I go, I add four more powers. I add the Balkan Alliance, which is, you know, uh, Greece, Serbia, Bulgaria, Romania, Spain, which is Spain and Portugal and Tunis. The low countries, Holland uh, Belgium. And then the Ruhr at, is just a third supply center for them. And then Norway has Denmark, Sweden and Norway. Um, and that's so that I can keep the teams at like two or three rather than three or four, cause that's where you start to lose people. Uh, and I have two different classes playing it. So it's, it's fun to see that play out differently in each one. You, there's the kids who seem really hopeful, really like generally boys who are just like, Oh, I'm, I'm going to take this over. And then three turns later, they have one supply center, they were Germany and they're getting conquered by Norway and the low countries. Just brilliant. Um, so the, the boys are stupidly aggressive and then the girls actually play the game well and support them. And uh, kind of, I, you know, the teams that there's mixed, there's some girls that are like, can I just quit? And I'm like, no, you can't quit. And they're like, well, can I just move my pieces and let them take over? I'm like, I, there's nothing preventing that. So go for it. Um, Which, to be fair is how a lot of diplomacy is shaken out in reality
1: where yeah. there's like weak leaders and they're like, eh, yeah, no, I'll, I'll just be your client state. I'm fine yeah. with that.
2: And like, so they're like, can I join their team? Like, no, you have to sit down and read a book tomorrow. I'm going to do the last, the last day of turns. Um, should be good. I, you know, this is always a fun activity. I wish I could kind of record it a little bit better and try to show sure. it a little bit, but it's, it's a, it's fun and hopefully it leads the students into, you know, our study of world war one, uh, in a more exciting way. So.
1: That's awesome. Anyways. Um, real quick before we get into the topic. Uh, so our neighbor across the street, their son's birthday party is coming up in a week or so they send out the invite and it's at a bike park. So you can go, mm-hmm. it's got like a little track with jumps and stuff. And, and, um, And so that's where the birthday party is, is at this little bike path park. And I'm like, well, that's great. We're excited to see you there. And uh, problem is my daughter, about a year or so ago, when we were still living in Arizona, she had just started learning how to ride a bike when she was like five or six. And she was just starting to get the hang of it. And then life got in the way. We stopped biking for months and months and months. And we hadn't biked since then until... We got this invite in the mail or uh, sent to us. And I'm like, well, I know she's going to want to go. I know she's going to ride her bike. So we got to start practicing. So the past two days we've been, uh, our neighbor next door has a, it's a business. So they've got a parking lot. And so we've been practicing riding a bike to get ready for the party. My son has zero interest in actually riding the bike, but man, he sure loves that, that tire pump. And so he's basically the pit crew because he just keeps walking around with the pump. So and he's you. just he's like, here you go, you need air. And he goes, and like put it on your shoes, he'll pump up your shoes. So that's nice to have. And do you, uh, do you have those uh those Reeboks? Those reebok pumps, no, but it took me way back the second he started doing it because he grabbed my foot and he put the little nozzle next to it and went shh. And anyway, so my daughter wants to be a biker and my son wants to be the pit crew. I think it's a it's a that's perfect right. dynamic. There's plenty of yeah. trade
2: schools, <laughs> yeah.
1: Hey, I bet those picker guys make decent money. Um, they make it up in the ranks. Oh, so yeah. oh yeah. Anyway, that's our our story. We're getting ready for the birthday party, and, and uh one's learning how to ride a bike, and the other one's gonna make sure everyone's geared up for the for the festival. Yep.
0: Awesome.
1: Uh, so yeah, let's get into this topic. So we were just talking about sports as we were leading in and how great they are. And I got a question for you, Eric. What is the greatest? Sports rivalry in America. Or yeah, I guess you could say the world, but of you know, modern sports as we understand them today. What's the greatest rivalry? Uh,
2: I mean, Lakers, Celtics come to mind. Okay, that's Yankees, Red Sox. yeah Um
1: i'm obviously going to say packers bears as far yeah, as yeah i want goes. to say like
2: dodgers and somebody but i'm not sure who that is especially since they moved you know, to know
1: as far as fierce intensity the steelers and the raiders in the 70s and 80s were probably the nastiest rivalry i've ever read about and seen mm-hmm. yeah i mean they were vicious games but um i thought worldwide if we go international uh manu and chelsea that's got to be it's up there right
2: Man U and liverpool and maybe okay. not a rivalry in their games, but Manchester United and Liverpool, as they competed, always like traded titles. I think for many, many mm-hmm. years, it was Manchester United could never get more than one title ahead of Liverpool.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, but I don't know if that's kind of a rivalry. You know, the other rivalry would be in <clears throat> Scottish uh, football, and that would be Rangers and Celtic, um, because they okay. are and have been for many years, uh, not so much anymore, but literally divided along sectarian lines rangers are protestant and celtic is catholic and their players generally fall into that um you know category and so there i think there was one i can't remember the name one player who went from celtic to rangers or rangers to celtic and it was a big deal um i know arizona arizona state as far as their football rivalry is one of the oldest like within like territorial cup it's the oldest territorial cup um it's older than any other in-state rivalries like that
0: yeah i would
2: think
1: i would think ohio state michigan is probably the biggest rivalry
2: i remember growing up as a kid it's probably bigger um notre dame and usc for many years was a big deal and uh you know what USC's original mascot was? They were the Fighting Methodists.
1: Oh, you know I remember you mentioning this a few years ago.
2: Yeah. So you have you have the Catholic big Catholic school and and this and then the big Methodist school. Um, so there's a lot of big rivalries. Obviously, um, in baseball, the the Republican Party versus the Democratic Party last week playing their baseball game. That's oh,
1: did they have the softball the annual softball game? No,
2: it was a baseball game. Oh, it was? Yeah, some of these guys took it way too seriously.
1: Like, they've got the gloves.
2: I'm like, come on. Nobody's...
1: I'm surprised you know, that Bears. with the age of most of the constituents in either party <laughs> that they can field a baseball team. But good good for them, I guess. Bipartisanship or some other nonsense. Yeah, But all those are good rivalries. You know, growing up, the Packers-Bears, that was the rivalry as a kid. And there was history to it. It's now over a century that they've been playing games against one another and, and, you know, storied coaches and teams and players and, and all these great battles. And I would say the same thing goes for any of the ones you mentioned. And it, and it, what's interesting about a good rivalry is it, is it stops being just about the game being played. It's no longer just about the sport. It's an identity, right? Like mm-hmm. it's, it's almost tribal and it's almost a a callback to to some sort of primitive warfare right that that's kind of what it comes down to, especially with the more violent games like football and and those are all great rivalries and I think there's a lot of store history there and, and culture and identity one and more
2: passion, yeah, one more that hits close to home u s mexico
1: yeah, that's a great and, one and, as far and, as soccer
2: goes, and it is never pretty
0: no, like it's are, it's
2: uh, you know, you know, football teams, Lakers, Celtics, they can have a game and, you know, it's just a game, but U S Mexico, it does not matter. They yeah. all just, it doesn't matter
0: <laughs> if,
1: you know, cause the U S didn't make the World cup in the last round mm-hmm. and it doesn't matter how good the U S is or isn't, or Mexico is, or isn't, they always bring their a game when it's that game. Yeah. Um, you know, it's like, I, I might go, One in 16, but I'm going to beat your, you know, the one I'm going to get is against you. And I think that's indicative of, of a great
2: rivalry. You know, what was fascinating this summer is U S and Mexico played twice. They played in the, the CONCACAF nations leagues, final nations league final. And they played in the CONCACAF gold cup final. And in the, I think it was a nations league final, Christian Pulisic. Um, had a penalty kick and scored it. I think it was a penalty kick and he scored it. And he went over to the corner where the Mexico fans were throwing stuff. And he ran over there and he like, he just puffed his chest out at him as they started to, to throw more stuff. It was one of those moments of, like when the U S is doing a corner kick and you see all the Mexico fans throwing stuff and you're just, it irritates you. Mm-hmm. But then he scored that goal and he goes up and he just puts it in their face and the rest of the U S team gets there and they just look, they're just looking at that corner of Mexico fans, just give it to them. It was yeah. Whew, that was your Russell Crowe, are I you not
1: entertained it. moment. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. There you go. Um well and and I think you know as we talk about these and those rivalries are great and they're all historic and they're all intense but none of them compare to what we're about to talk about as far as pure historic animosity and what we're gonna powder puff about, game
2: from Austin Texas
1: 1961 nailed it yeah <laughs> yeah the losing team didn't go to the podium it was a whole thing big mess
2: <laughs> big mess
1: second right. a, a close second <laughs> to that to that powder puff game was what we know as the Nikkei or the, the Nika riots in Constantinople of 532 AD and what these are were The the Roman Empire, and actually what dated back to the Roman Republic, uh, so before we even had Roman Empire, uh, were the games. And specifically the games we're talking about are the chariot races. So in ancient Rome, when it was a republic and then became an empire, there were four teams, or demes, and uh, red, blue, green, and white of chariot teams and they would run around or race around the circus maximus four horse teams The circus maximus is about two thousand feet long but only about 150 feet wide and they would just battle each other to to win and these four teams that that was that was how you you know you were in one of those four camps and by camp that's that's literal like they, it, it was an identity, and it was something that had been spanning for hundreds of years. You know, we did the episode on the Olympics and how before the modern Olympics, the, the ancient Greek Olympics was hundreds of years, I think almost a millennia long. Well, this is right up there with that,
2: and uh, dating back to ancient Rome. And these teams were not just loyal to their team. This might be something like, you know, there's four four of these teams, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, the Veneti, the Prasini, the Rusati, and the Albati basically the the names of the colors, but it wasn't just their team. It was also, you know, uh, there was political attachments Mm -hmm. to these teams, theological attachments to these teams in terms of all Uh the theological issues going on in the, in like the fourth, fifth, sixth centuries. Um, And so, yeah, these teams were more than just the the teams playing and the people who supported them. It was a bunch of other things.
1: Yeah, and that's a great segue. And what had happened is over time, after Rome had fallen, so Rome fell, was sacked in 476 AD. And so the empire had been split for some time before that around 300 AD, the empire split into two co-empires, east and west. Rome, the western half, had now fallen. And the eastern half, which we became known as the Byzantine Empire, remained. And they were centered in Constantinople. Over time, those four teams, those four colors, red, blue, green, and white, had been absorbed so that there's only two teams left, green and blue. And the identifiers that that you're talking about here, the typically, and we'll get into this a little bit more when we start talking about the characters in the story, but there is the blue and the blue team or the blues were at the time of this riot in 532 AD, they were the team of. The establishment, so to speak, the ruling class generally favored the blues. Justinian, the emperor, was a fan of the blues, and his wife Theodora, the empress, uh, grew up in the blues camp. Literally, like she was actually born to the greens, but very early in her life, she her family migrated to the blues and grew up and worked under them.
2: It's like a Packer fan becoming a Bears fan, like how it's, does that happen?
1: It's pretty weird. Yeah, that's a good comparison. Like, like when you see a a person in Wisconsin, like, oh, yeah, no, I root for the Bears. and' are like, really? Like, are you okay? Do you need to go to the doctor? And the same kind of thing here.
2: Well, uh, I, so it's, and I don't want to bring your wife into this, but it's one thing for your wife <laughs> to be a Vikings good. fan and to marry you a Packers fan. That's one yes. thing. But for her to ever say, I'm swearing off the Vikings and becoming a Packers fan. Never. That'd be something Never completely different. Yeah.
1: And we've we've had discussions about that. It's never gonna happen. Um, she's tentatively okay with the kids being Packers fans, but she does a little soft um persuasion with them to wear a lot of purple
2: and gold as well. So if you want a chocolate chip cookie, just say go yeah, Vikings. Yeah,
1: you know that and that's you know, it's a shrewd world. But anyway, these these teams had developed in just the blue and the greens. The blues are typically the side of the establishment so to speak and then the greens are more like the side of the common man or the people which is so 100 true with how we have teams especially teams that are in close in proximity to another like the yankees right literally called the evil empire Mm -hmm. because all they do is they just throw money at things and the same thing with like jerry jones right oh well yeah it's easy to be good if you can just buy a team um like the Dodgers in, in LA, but then you got like the Red Sox. And for the longest time, the Red Sox, you know, in relation to the Yankees, they were the the scrappy underdog and you know the the no luck Red Sox sort of thing. And and so they were a good foil to the to the establishment Yankees and the big powerhouse Yankees and and that dynamics kind of flipped in the past 20 years. But it's a great way to look at when you talk about these these chariot teams, the greens and the blues like,
2: I feel like Chicago might There's that might social be a better, dynamic.
1: Another great example with the White Sox and the Cubs,
2: because that's very regional, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also with those regions, you're talking about different parts of the, the city of Chicago, and something I know very little about. But you have the South Side, and you have, I guess it's the North Side. I don't. I honestly don't know. Yeah. But there's very clear lines in Chicago for what makes you a White Sox or a Cubs fan, and that's also going to be socioeconomic in some respects.
1: Yeah. So the Cubs are on the north side and then the White Sox are on the, the south side um, of Chicago. And I think it's very interesting because my wife has two friends that are from Chicago. They're married. And I believe the wife is a White Sox fan and the husband is a diehard Cubs fan. Somehow they made it work. But it's the same, that that weird regional, like,
2: you know, just tension between you them. Know the, like the 49ers and Raiders had that very similar thing when they were both in the Bay Area. Mm-hmm. Right, the 49ers were the upper class exactly. kind of fancy to do. And the Raiders were just, that was the dregs.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. and And that's just so that paints a picture of what we're trying to describe with these two teams. However, Let's talk about the Byzantine Empire in 532 AD at the time of this riot takes place. Yeah. So Rome, as we mentioned, had fallen in 476 AD. Um, they were sacked. Odoacer was the chieftain of the Germanic tribes. He deposes the last Western emperor, Romulus Augustulus. And uh, this is when we consider the fall of Rome. I mean, others put it towards more in the 500s
2: officially, but... I mean, the the city of Rome is sacked multiple times in the 5th century. Yeah. So, uh, you know, what happens in 476 doesn't even involve Rome necessarily because Romulus Augustulus basically just kind of gives up at Ravenna. And, But this is when the Roman Empire and the structures that are upholding it as far as in Rome and around Rome and the imperial structure there basically just give up and so all the administration just kind of goes away and odoacer doesn't want a whole lot to do with it they they're like well you're the new guy he's like eh, you know this isn't really what i want i just wanted to grab some cool stuff and get out of here but (laughs) in the east yeah zeno uh who was briefly deposed by uh uh Basilicus. Basiliscus. Basiliscus. Um, And then he, Basiliscus is dealt with and Zeno's back in power. He's now basically just, they just tell him, well, you're now just the sole emperor. You're it um, because there is no Western half the emperor. So you're just, you're just the emperor. And um, it's now effectively the Byzantine empire. What will become the Byzantine empire. He's going to rule for about 16, 17 years. After which Anastasius the first will um, come to power. He's going to reign for probably about twenty-seven years. His nephew Justin, um, who's going to be elected by the I army, mean, the people, is going to rule next. And then after him is Justinian the first, who is his nephew, and he's going to reign from five twenty-seven until 565 38 years or so and 5 years into his reign is when the event we're talking about the Nika riots occur and so you know Justinian and um his uncle Justin are not nobility in the Byzantine empire right so yeah, they, they were, were both, both born, born peasants peasants
1: yep. yeah they they were both born peasants uh Justin rose up he became an effective military commander. He's kind of one of the elite Imperial guards. And then he adopted his nephew Justinian and Justinian rose up um, kind of through the ranks of society and the military. And then when Justin passed away, the empire fell to Justinian. So it's interesting because you can, well, and we can probably talk about this a lot more later, but it is interesting because Justinian and Justin both were, were common folk and they were born as such. And then they rose through through Byzantine society up to the empire, um, kind of on their merits. And it shows in Justinian, he um, is known as what is, he began what is known as the restoration of the empire. Much of the territory, not all of it, but much of the territory that had been lost when Western Rome fell, such as uh, much of North Africa, part of Spain, Italy, Sicily, uh, all these parts of the these these Roman provinces and specifically Rome itself, uh, Justinian was able to bring back into the fold in the Byzantine Empire. So he was a massively effective leader and he was very good at expanding the reach of the empire to its to its zenith. I mean, I don't think they ever achieved the in total land the the prestige or the the power that they had. Under Justinian, I don't think that was ever achieved again, um, and so he's very, very effective leader in that regard. But like you said, early in his reign, this thing happens: this riot and the Nika riots happen, and that could potentially
2: derail all of this. you yeah. know, because most of this stuff hadn't happened yet. So there's that's, I, I wanted to make one correction: Justin the First um, is not the nephew of Anastasius. Um, He's just his guard and he's elected. But Anastasius does have two heirs, um, actually three heirs, those being um, his nephew Hypatius, his other nephew Pompeius, and then a great nephew by the short name of Probus, who are going to be involved in this story later on as well. So Anastasius does have heirs. They don't seem to want too much to do with ruling, um, which makes it a little bit easier for Anastasius to hand it over to justin when he dies and then justin of course has a uh an adopted nephew justinian and so justinian while he's reigning also has these three nephews and great nephews of anastasius who are around they're part of the nobility they're part of the ruling class and they're kind of around at the time of this event and they'll get involved in this story as well
0: mm-hmm.
2: yeah great point and um
1: One more thing about Justin is actually his wife, and she's going to play a very big role in this story. Uh, Her name is Theodora. She's the wife of Justinian. She was the empress. She was born in 500 AD. Her father um, was a bear trainer for the green faction. So she was born to the greens, and she had two other sisters, but um, her father died when she was about four years old. Doesn't really explain what happened, how he died, but he died suddenly
2: when she was four
1: yeah one can I, assume but you know I feel that's feel like this is
2: pretty self-explanatory
1: he trains bears but then you know what happens is he you know slips in the shower and cracks his head so i don't know but yeah so he it's died paper cut. her Gets mother infected. exactly her mother takes her and her sisters over to the blue camp and they take her in take them in to the blue camp kind of as a a poke in the eye of of the green team to say, Hey, look, we're so much more magnanimous than you guys are because we take in these orphans and widows. Um, And so she was a part of the green faction. Theodora was an actress and she began to rise through society as a result. Um, She met the the general Justin Justinian's favorite general, Belisarius um, as part of her, Duties as an actress. Um, She became a consort to uh, another high official and just kind of as she rose through society, she met all these other key players until she met Justin, Justinian in about 520 AD and then became his lover. And then they got married in 525 AD, uh, two years before he became the emperor. Um, So she's this very shrewd, and I don't say that derogatorily, she's just like shrewd, she's very smart and she's very canny and she's very, um, capable and she's able to, to move among all these different circles in high society, even though she started out very, very low. And I think that's a credit to her personality. And I think it shows up when we get to the, kind of the, the climax of the story, um, you'll, you'll see where that capability comes in and and changes the whole narrative really.
2: Um, she's got a a very strong personality and And I'm assuming that's coming from the bears. You would think so. I mean, yeah, she's got that, that bear tenacity. If you can work
1: your way (laughs) around bears being trained, you've got to be able to work your way around. I mean, her dad died when she was four. I don't know how much bear training she was doing personally at four Four years worth. Yeah, maybe that's true. Um, so let's get into the riots. So the games were being held. And so this is in 532 AD, again, only the, the green and blue teams have remained. Um, like we said, four horse teams, uh, they were in Constantinople, the, the stadium was called the Hippodrome. In Rome, it was the Circus Maximus. Uh, but in Constantinople, it's the Hippodrome. Uh, most of the charioteers were slaves um, and they earned their freedom, fame and fortune through racing, much like the gladiators of Rome did as well. Um, However, this is a horrifically violent sport. Like it's brutal. There's this thing called the spina in the middle of the course. And that's what, like, that's, what's dividing, you know, the, the track. So you go Mm -hmm. up one side and then turn and come back down the other side of the spine, so to speak. And the track is only 150 feet wide and maneuvering four teams Of horses or four horse teams across this very narrow track um, trying to get an edge on one another is very very dangerous and so oftentimes riders will get thrown into the spine and crushed um, against it or their their chariot will break and the riders just get dragged across the track by their horses who don't realize that the wheels have come off and, and the chariot's all shattered and so it's just like Horrifically brutal. They say the average lifespan of a charioteer, he was lucky if he made it out of his 20s. Like it was not for the faint of heart. But if you became a successful charioteer, you were you were in the money. Like you were gonna make millions of dollars and and be set for life. And so the risk reward, you know, for a slave, well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't have much of a life now, so why not risk it? Seeing if I can achieve my freedom.
2: There's a quote by Procopius who writes Mm -hmm. um, about the the Nika revolt. And he says, in every city, the population has been divided for a long time past into the blue and green factions. But within comparatively recent times, it has come about that for the sake of these names and the seats which the rival factions occupy and watching the games, they spend their money and abandon their bodies to the most cruel tortures and even do not think it unworthy to die a most shameful death. And he says, you know, again, and they fight against their opponents, knowing not for what end they imperil themselves, but knowing well that even if they overcome their enemy, the fight, the conclusion of the matter for them will be to carry it off straight away to prison, and finally, after su- suffering extreme torture, to be destroyed. So,
0: and I then he says,
1: that, this is like he can't call this anything but a diseased soul. Like it's such yeah. a, it's such a, a brutal
2: savage realization that that these people are engaging in and and i'm sure that we've seen this in modern sports especially when when fans take things a little take things too far mm-hmm. um when fans start to throw words at, at the players or th- throw actual objects at players when it goes to that point we are in the same realm as having some disease of the soul um yeah these are brutal games and and it, these aren't even gladiator fights these are basically just races yeah
1: but they were they almost had the same mortality rate of the gladiator fights that's what's so wild about it and and so you have these two factions that had been going at it in these races for literal centuries like that's the thing you you got to keep into context our oldest Mm -hmm. rivalries in america are what hundred Maybe 150 years old. I I don't know if you,
2: I'm sure there's some baseball teams that that go back. And how many of those among fans have really truly been passed down? I mean, Mm -hmm. the teams that I kind of associate with, I guess one of those has been passed down from family. Yeah, It's not like, it's not like we took it very seriously. Um, But otherwise it's been geographical. Mm -hmm. Right. So but we're talking about hundreds of years. And these are literally families. Yeah. Across an empire. (laughs) Like, like,
1: I mean, that's, you know, like we said, it started with the Republic carried on into the Roman empire, then carried on into the Byzantine empire. Like these are deep seated. Like they're, you know, you could say the animosity between the French and the Germans like this is the same type of thing, except you live in the same city. Like that's the, it's a, yeah. it just mind boggling. All right. So that's kind of the setup of, of what these games are, the races and um, the riot itself. Let's, let's get into that. So there's some pre um, a couple of things that show this animosity in the years preceding the actual riot. Um uh, mm-hmm. In 501 aD the greens ambushed. this is in the city of Constantinople, the capital. The green team or the greens ambushed and killed 3,000 blues inside their camp in the Hippodrome. so they
2: That's they went extreme.
1: In. So yeah, take whatever you know the roughest English hooliganism or you know rowdy Red Sox fans in the world, none of them are doing this. none of them are waging a a literal battle within the city to to ambush the rival team uh similarly in 505 ad uh, in the city of antioch the green charioteer porphyrius defected to the blues and beat the greens so he betrayed his team right he betrayed the side he was on
2: i'm reading brett Favre. exactly yeah
1: (laughs) exactly or um
2: green to blues
1: yep and or uh Anytime some Red Sox player says, I'll never play for the Yankees. And the Yankees said, yeah, what about $200 million? And they said, you know what? I'm going to go play for the Yankees. Yeah, um, Same kind Easy. of thing there. And, and so anyway, Porphyrius defected to the Blues, won a victory against the Greens in Antioch, and then the whole city rioted <laughs> because how dare he betray his team? So just gives you a kind of taste of what we're building up to here. So let's get into the to the actual riot itself. The seeds of discontent as the empire grew, you know. So so um Justin brought some stability, Justinian was starting to expand. Um he had this great general Belisarius, who was just wrecking enemies all across the globe and uh, securing the empire and reclaiming lost territory. But that costs money, it costs a lot of money, and so Justinian said, well, we need to raise taxes. And so he hired or appointed John of Cappadocia to kind of be the guy that'd be like, you figure out how much, how we get the money we need to pay our armies. And so John said, well, we tax people. And so he started levying all these taxes. It said he levied about 26 taxes at the time of the riot. And interestingly enough, a lot of those taxes were impacting the rich, which had not been happening for quite a while. So I think that's that's
2: worth note there is that, How dare he?
0: (laughs) Exactly. Can I just say, how
2: (laughs) dare he tax the wealthiest Romans? I
1: know. Hey.
2: I mean, that's what the plebes are there for. They're just honest,
1: honest businessmen. Just trying to run their vineyard. And this guy's going to take all their profits. They
2: also don't have the, the benefit of you know, a federal reserve and, you know, modern monetary theory. Yeah. Unfortunately that did not happen yet,
1: but it's just, (laughs) I think it's interesting because I think you'll see because part of the animosity that happens in the strange bedfellows sort of situation that happens here is that the blues and the greens unite against Justinian. Well, if the blues are the establishment side and generally populated by the wealthy, they're probably using this discontent as a means to, Either get Justinian to change, or get them out of the way so they can get the taxes lower. And, and that
2: doesn't seem like some new development where your mm-hmm. establishment group, when they're unhappy, will use a different group and will will appeal to them and say, "Hey, this thing that's unfair to us is probably also unfair to you. Why don't you help us reestablish the status quo?" Yeah. Because, Which will help us,
1: but it probably won't and, actually help
2: you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so you have, I mean, there's part of that that just sounds so familiar. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and we could look, you know, we could look to the past year and a half, you know, every sacrifice, every, um, every difficulty that has, has been borne by the American people has been specifically borne by the people who, after 18 months, have lost wealth, have lost savings, have lost their ability to make money. And there is a certain group of people that has just done nothing but make money throughout a pandemic. Yeah, exactly. And every effort that was made during those 18 months was to make sure that they didn't lose out. Um, so this is not something new.
1: No, it's really timely. Actually, um, I, I think you can you can pull a lot out of what sowed this discontent and apply it to today. And I'm not saying everything is one
2: for one, but there is some similarity here. Um, another thing that yeah, I mean, this would be if the Yankees and, and Red Sox something happened in a game and they turned around and marched on DC. All of them together. <laughs> Which
1: sounds ridiculous, right? Like that doesn't right. make sense, but it's exactly <laughs> it's what happened. <laughs> it's exactly what happened. Uh another issue that um, and this is more of the people in the higher status social clubs, they didn't like Theodora for her low reputation. Interestingly enough, uh, if it had been I think five, 10 years earlier, uh, Justinia would not have been able to marry Theodora, but Justin actually, uh, his predecessor and his uncle, when he was emperor, passed a law saying that actresses or former actresses can marry into nobility. That was something that was apparently forbidden prior why? to then.
2: Why? I, why didn't the British monarchy do that in the 1920s?
1: <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, they made the poor guy abdicate. Um,
2: so so you, it's, it, they could have. All right,
1: they could have, but it's interesting. So they didn't like Theodora. They, you know, the guy that we're referring to Porcopius, he actually didn't really like Theodora. Um, Some of his later works, um, secret history, they really, he kind of savages Justinian and Theodora, but you know, they, a lot of the rumors, especially when you have a strong, intelligent, powerful woman, um, that get thrown around for any of them got thrown around for her. You know, she was uh, a prostitute. She was um, of low, birth and and she was nothing but kind of like a just a sex slave for Justinian. She didn't have any real status in society. And that was another reason that people didn't like Justinian's policies or the, if they didn't like him, they just used it as a wedge issue to to kind of make him persona non grata because he had this low-born woman with him. Never mind, she was probably the most capable of everyone in the court, but um So these kind of things were festering while Justinian was emperor. And what happened was on January 10, a riot broke out between the two factions during one of the races. And what Justinian did is he sent in the troops and he arrested seven of the ringleaders, people from both sides. And then a couple of days later, he was set to have them hung. So now you have people from the blues and the greens both angry at Justinian. They're no longer angry at each other. They're angry at Justinian because he went too far and now he's killing our leaders or our faction leaders. And we don't like that. Interestingly enough, the scaffold that the seven were to be executed and hung on uh, broke during the hangings. And so two of the people survived being hung and they're, you know, they're Faction members grabbed them and and escorted them off to safety. And so then they demanded the next time the races were being held at the Hippodrome that Justinian to pardon them because, hey, God didn't want them to die because they survived being hung by breaking the scaffolding. So you have to pardon them. And Justinian didn't really, he didn't really respond And so what happened is is at at these games, these races are going on, the crowd's getting more animated. Blues and greens are starting to, to shout, shout at the emperor, and they start shouting Nika, Nika, which means victory or conquer. And so they're not shouting it at their racers anymore, though. They're starting to shout it at Justinian up in the emperor's box. And they're not shouting it at the blues or the greens. The blues and the greens are all shouting that in a unified voice towards Justinian. And so now this is starting to turn into something where it's it's not it ain't just a game anymore it's not it's all fun and games right this is this is something more than games now and so justinian Mm -hmm. bolts and and the court bolt and they go back to the palace and they get their guard and, and hide and what happens is the blues and the greens take over and so they take over the hippodrome they flow out of the hippodrome and then they just start torching the city and so these riots begin and the riots lasted what was it five, five days there?
2: Yeah. You know, this reminds me of if you've ever watched a soccer match, right. And the referee blows the whistle, the referee steps in and says something's wrong. And then both teams descend on the referee mm. as the referee is trying to give a yellow card or make a disciplinary action. And both teams are getting after the referee. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as as announcers always say, hey, the referee has to get control of the game. And when referees don't, it just gets out of control sometimes to the point that the referee just has to say, hey, that's game. I'm out of here. Like, we're not doing this anymore. Yeah. Uh-huh. So this isn't too different. Um, the <clears throat> but scale ha- is
1: massive. But yeah. the, the, the base emotions, the base things that are happening are
2: very similar. Mm-hmm. And so these these riots that last five days Include a lot of burning of the city of Constantinople Including Hagia Sophia Um, It's the Church of Holy Wisdom I believe that's the correct uh, Translation And that still stands today Right I mean the Hagia Sophia Still stands today it's now a a mosque Well it gets rebuilt Because of this yeah Okay (laughs) And um, my favorite part of this Just For some reason My favorite part of this is Hypatius. So Hypatius is the nephew of Anastasius I, who was a couple emperors ago. Anastasius, remember, had had basically said Justin would be a great guy, elect him. And his nephews, Hypatius, Pompeius, and Probus are not appointed as, as emperors. And they seem okay with that. They don't seem too particularly interested in ruling or reigning, and they're not very competent at that either. But yeah. four days in, and I'm going to let you talk about Theodora in a bit because she does some amazing things here. They're all locked in the palace, and Hypatius, um, upon thinking that that maybe everyone in the in the court and the senate is out to get him. Justinian sends away the Senate and the rest of the nobility. He says somebody might be in here to kill me, so he sends them all away. This includes Hypatius and Pompeius, who head on out of the palace and try to get home. Upon getting home, Hypatius is basically taken from his home. His wife pleads for them to treat him well, probably thinks he's going to be killed, but they drag him away from his home and say, "You're our Emperor now." Yeah. And he's like, no, that's not a good idea. But then he ends up in the Hippodrome. And as uh, Procopius puts, he says, when Hypatius reached the Hippodrome, he went up immediately to where the emperor is accustomed to take his place and seated himself on the royal throne from which the emperor was always accustomed to view the equestrian and athletic contests. And from the palace, Mundus went out to the gate, which uh, from the circling descent has been given the name of snail. Um And basically, Hypatius becomes emperor and takes the seat of the emperor in the Hippodrome. And, you know, all of his qualms about being named emperor go away. Well, when you got 30,000 people
1: demanding it of you and lauding you to be their emperor, right? Yeah. Like, that's about how many people are in the Hippodrome right now from the blues and greens that have started this riot. So, you know. Maybe he didn't want to, or maybe he didn't want to until he saw how intoxicating it was. Like, I, I don't know what, what his motivations or were.
2: but what is what is the what happens if he refuses? You know, it could just be well, you can be our emperor, or we're going to kill you because then you're in in cahoots with Justinian. Exactly. So he
1: might have just been in a rock and a hard place there.
2: Yeah. So Hypatius um, is named as their emperor in the Hippodrome, and that's not going to last very long.
1: Nope. So it's about day four, right? We're still in day four here, and so, like we said, Justinian and his closest advisors are like, "We should flee. We should get out of here. Let's get out of the city because it's like the whole city is turned against us right now. And if we don't get out, we could die, right? That that's that's the prudent course of action for them. We like we got to get out of here. We can regroup and then,
2: and it's not that this is just a suggestion. They have. An exit plan. They have boats at the ready, like they're prepared to leave and they have a place to go. Exactly. This is not just a hey, maybe we should just leave. It's we've actually secured transportation. We're ready to go. Justinian, follow us. We're gonna go.
1: Yeah. And so this is where Theodora speaks, and it's so good. It's just perfection. So I won't add anything to it. I'm just gonna start reading her words because she does it best. My lords, the present occasion is too serious to allow me to follow the convention that a woman should not speak in a man's council. Those whose interests are threatened by extreme danger should think only of the wisest course of action, not of conventions. In my opinion, flight is not the right course. Even if it should bring us to safety, it is impossible for a person, having been born into this world, not to die. But for one who has reigned in it, it is t- intolerable to be a fugitive. May I never be deprived of this purple robe, and may I never see the day when those who meet me do not call me empress. If you wish to sit, save yourself, my lord, there is no difficulty. We are rich, and there is the sea, and yonder are the ships. Yet reflect for a moment whether, when you have once escaped to a place of security, you would not gladly exchange such safety for death. As for me, I agree with the adage that the royal purple is the noblest shroud. And with that, that stiffened Justinian's spine, so to speak, and and it convinced him that to run away would be cowardice, and he would not be deserving of the title emperor if he were to flee in this moment of crisis. And it took Theodora's courage and eloquence and bravery and you know, presumption to, to just say, I'm speaking up now because if I don't, we're going to make the wrong course, right? This is the wisest course of action, not of convention. Like, don't worry about what the tradition is. Don't worry about what the rules are. We need to do what's right or what's the wisest. And I think it's just, I mean, she was just perfect. And with that, Justinian says, you're right, we're we're going to stay. And then he devises this whole plan on how to, to put down the riot. But before we get into that plan, is there anything
2: you want to add regarding Theodora? Well, she stiffens his spine. And, and what's interesting is, this is five years into his reign as emperor. Mm-hmm. He's going to reign for another 33 years after this. Yeah. And so you can imagine this is one of those... Um, I guess clutch moments, right? You have a decision to make. All she can do is give advice, and she does so, and she does so very eloquently. And he takes the advice, and upon taking that advice, it he doesn't seem to look back after saying, "We're staying, and we're going to deal with this." And then even after that, he is taking action as an emperor. Yeah, you know what? What kind of crisis is going to phase you after? dealing with 30,000 angry sports fans wanting to depose you, what what crisis is going to phase you at this point? So yeah. this doesn't just stiffen his spine for this moment. It steals him for the future. Um, and as we see, well, he he effectively is a very good emperor after this. Yeah, he does good I, things.
1: I would say he was, you know, when we talk about the five good emperors, he's right up there, I, I think with Marcus Aurelius, augustus, uh, Trajan, I mean, he's he's right up there. I, I don't think we talk about him much because for whatever reason, we think Rome fell in four seventy six and then we just stop talking about the Byzantines, which is a detriment to us because the Byzantines are fascinating and have a thousand years of their own culture and history. But that's a whole other thing. I think another thing that's really interesting about Theodore and and, like you said, She stiffened his spine in this moment, but that probably also stiffened his spine for the rest of his life. Um, And it probably was one of those things where it's like Justinian goes, you know, knows. Because I think about this with my wife, and I'm sure you do too. It's like, it doesn't matter how dire the straits are. I know my wife is there for me and I'm -hmm. for her, right? And I don't know if straits have ever gotten more dire than what Justinian and Theodora were facing in 532 AD. That's pretty tough. And, um, you know, but I think just, you knows because it doesn't matter from here on out because I know she's got my back. And I think that's something that probably helped him as, as his empire grew in later years, but whatever, whatever the cause or whatever the reason it did create this resolve in Justinian, his council, and obviously Theodora had always had it. Um, to not run away. And so they devised this plan to put down the riot. And let me get to my notes here real quick. Um, Mm -hmm. Justinian had his general Belisarius. There we go. So Belisarius, who probably one of the greatest generals of all time, if frankly, if you just look at his victories. Um, So Justinian had Belisarius along with Narses, who was a well-regarded eunuch. Um, They surrounded the Hippodrome. I think they had a bunch of goths in their forces as well. And uh, they proceed to trap the rioters in the Hippodrome. They block all the exits. And then they just send in their goth mercenaries to hack away at every single person inside the Hippodrome. Kill them all,
2: including Hypatius. Yeah. Well, Hypatius and Pompeius are pulled out.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: of the crowd they aren't killed there in the hippodrome right away and they're brought and it's brought to justinian we have hypatius we have pompeius they have um you know rebelled against you and justinian wants to spare them but theodora says these these guys are basically she tells him they're they're spineless they're they're weak-willed. They're not going to stick with you through thick and thin. They will They will jump ship at a moment's notice. And she convinces him, you should let them be executed. And so the following day, or, or the soldiers kill both of them. And then the following day, they throw them into the sea. Um, and that was it. According to Procopius, that was the end of the insurrection. Yeah. And... That was that, right? And so now you have the blues and the greens effectively wiped out.
1: Yeah, that was the end of the chariot. The rivalry's gone because it was literally extinguished. Uh, 30,000 rioters were estimated
2: to have been killed in the Hippodrome from Belisarius surrounding. I'm pretty sure if something similar happened, say like at the (laughs) Alabama-Texas A&M game people wouldn't have a stomach to watch college football the next few weeks. Yeah. Right. Like if, if this is how the games went, a lot of people would lose interest because people really are not interested in this part of it. We're interested in a guy running on the field, maybe taking his clothes off. We're interested in in maybe a fight between teams that dies down when, um, you know, uh, oh, what was the, you know, when we're on our test, um but oh, where they, it was an, into the what was the nickname for that pandemonium at the palace or something yeah something like that and, and started punching people in the stands like there was a point at which i can enjoy a good raucous fight during a game but once it got into the stands it got ugly and it was like that's not fun anymore
1: well and that's right you see those videos of fans fighting each other yeah and it's like that doesn't make me want to go watch Football or baseball yeah. or like, I don't I don't want like to go to the stadium. Teams do it.
2: If the teams do it, it doesn't bug me because the the teams will do it. There'll be penalties, people will get tossed, but you can. It, it's just some tension out there on the court, and and I feel like that's not maybe not okay, not according to the rules. But it's okay to let that happen once in a while. That's why American hockey lets that happen. Mm-hmm. But when you have people in the stands getting that involved, it's it's no longer
1: enjoyable exactly well and and it's in the interest of the teams and the business and the league to not let that stuff happen in the stands and so if they see that stuff happening they they stamp it out right away but getting back to the to the conclusion of the riot so (coughs) belisarius traps all the protesters protesters rioters kills them all Approximately 30,000, didn't matter if it was man, woman, child, whoever is in the hippodrome, all of them killed. And they think that would have equated to about 10% of the population of the city. So that means Byzantium or Constantinople had about 300,000 people in the city at this time. 10% of them are now gone. <laughs> Much of the city's burned. I mean, so I'm sure there's thousands more that died. During the riots themselves. This is just the people that were killed in the Hippodrome. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it's just this devastating event for this capital city of this vast empire. But Justinian's is able to recover from that. He reappoints uh, John of Cappadocia, who begins levying taxes again. And then he Reasserts And he begins a rebuilding project of the Hagia Sophia it takes about five years so that the Hagia Sophia, the one that we see now in Istanbul, that's the one that was built by Justinian. There was previous churches that were built on that spot, but this is that one that was built in 537 or completed in 537 is the one we see today. Um, so it's a 1500 year old site. Um. Yeah, the blue and green games; those were over. Chariot racing fell out of favor within the empire itself, and that's the story. But that leads to a whole lot of other stuff that happened post riot that I think is worth talking about. Do you want to go with the the reforms that? Well, Justine yeah. So Justinian
2: obviously reasserts this control and. um Justinian, one of the other things that he's known for is you could say that there he started these reforms before the riots. Um, but what we have today is the Codex Justinianus, Justinian Neus, um, basically Justinian's code, which if you've taken courses on you know classical history, ancient Rome, um, or the Byzantine Empire, Justinian's code was this codification of Roman law that had not really taken place in a thousand years of Roman history back to the Republic. And so he set this task to some of his some of his underlings to basically make sure they write out all of the Roman law so it can be codified so it can be written down. that's that's the objective. Now, this Justinian's code ends up making its way to italy post fall of rome in the west and kind of dispersing throughout western europe it's eventually also going to pass on into um eastern europe russia into the slavic europe and basically all of western law can be traced back to justinian's code this is one of the the kind of not terminus, but the beginning points of a lot of Western European and and just European law. The other, the other source of a lot of Western law is of course the old Testament, um, especially when it comes to like the 10 commandments and, and proper punishments for certain things. But one of the things that just Justinian did with these, these codes he put a lot of things into text about dealing with prostitution and how prostitutes should be treated, um, how abusers, sexual abusers and rapists should be dealt with harshly. So this is kind of an, I don't know if you'd call it odd, but just something very, uh, unexpected, I suppose. And to deal harshly with these kind of people is, is a new thing. And he wants to take care of that. Now that, that leads us into this discussion of reforms because there's four. Well, real quick, before you get
1: into those other reforms, yeah. one could say his dealings with prostitutes and protecting them as specifically dealing with sexual abusers might be another signal to Theodora, right? Because yeah. Theodora was viewed as a prostitute. She was a mistress and yeah. um, she was a, a concubine um, to others,
2: it definitely could be from her experience. You know,
1: and, and they viewed actresses like actress back then was basically a euphemism for prostitute in many regards. So I, I think you could say there's something there between Justinian and his relationship with his wife and possibly why he would be he would be open to these laws that would protect mm-hmm. prostitutes or sex workers and punish harshly sexual abusers. Um, maybe not, but I definitely think there's, I mean,
2: it's very likely the, the source of that, Mm -hmm. that change, but this leads into another discussion. You know, we, we talked about the, the Nika riots, but I also want to talk about some of these other classical reformers Mm -hmm. because there's four or actually five reformers from the classical world that I think are worth mentioning. And. You know, these are ones that we tend to learn about in high school history class, and we we're not going to dive too deep into it. But the first being Cleisthenes, um, you know, the, the Athenian reformer, probably one of the most important and influential uh, thinkers on democracy. And what he did in Athens was he reformed the democracy in Athens from what they had was these four tribes in Athens. That each sent, I believe they were called Archons, to their um, to their voting body in Athens. But those four tribes were all based on family. They were all based on relations. So he reformed that to 10 geographical tribes, which, oddly enough, were called Demes. And these are eventually, and this is ancient Greece, these are eventually going to become the Demes or Demos of ancient Rome that will be blue and green and red and white. Mm -hmm. So Cleisthenes is the originator of these deems in terms of using them from democracy. And so instead of being family relations, it's all geographical. You have 10 tribes instead of four. And so there's more representation. The next one is Solon. And Solon, his reforms have to do with who can be included in Athenian democracy. And for Solon, it was... To allow all Athenian citizens to participate in the Ecclesia, which was one of the main voting bodies in Athens, and other governing bodies and offices, open not just to the the noble classes in Athens, but to all all classes. You still had to be a citizen, so you still had to be a man, you still had to be um, not a slave, you still had to be not foreign born. But even if you were a poor citizen, you could still participate. Um, he also had a lot of reforms dealing with slaves and how slaves could be dealt with and who could become a slave and, and made it a little bit more difficult for someone to become a debt slave. Then we get to Rome and we get to the Gracchiai, or the Gracchiai, uh, Tiberius and Gaius Gracchus, right? And these two both attempted massive reforms in Rome, including redistribution of land, to the poor and to veterans, right? Those people who had served in Roman armies and those who were poor, that they should get land that currently was owned by the public, by the republic, right? Mm-hmm. So he wanted to redistribute this land so that those who were poor and veterans could have something that was actual property. Um, this wasn't particularly popular, especially among the Senate for and the aristocracy. They didn't want other people to have the same power they did. And this last one is Gaius Marius. And Marius um, is known, basically, he reformed the Roman legions. One of the things that he reformed was he removed requirements for recruitment, that being of having to own land or property in order to be allowed into the Roman legions. And this allowed poor people to join the Roman legions and make a way for themselves. We might compare this reform to uh, back in April, we talked about the Russo-Japanese War. Mm -hmm. And... The Russian Navy and military was very um, You had to be from it, nobility to be an yeah, officer. It was it was a, a caste system, effectively, right? To be an officer, to be a leader, you had to be from nobility, as if that conferred some sort of competence in military matters. Whereas the Japanese said, We don't care. If you can do the job, we'll teach you to read, to write, we'll teach you how to do this job if you're competent, and then mm-hmm. a lot more people to advance. So Marius's reforms were intended to allow more people to advance through the legions. And this is something we still do in the United States today, right? If you join the army, we will give you access to first of all, we're going to train you to do something that most people won't be able to do. It's going to train you to deal with a job. We'll give you training beyond that. We'll set you up to go to college for basically free. Mm-hmm. So all of these reforms, these these four sets of reformers, um all have the ability to drastically change the way things are done within their society. And that's kind of what I wanted to talk about because I feel like, and I'm nearly certain, that in the United States, we could do with some pretty drastic reform. I think a Cleisthenes or a Solon or a Gracchus brother or a Marius would do the United States some good. Yeah. Because there's a lot of things that could be reformed. And if I thought through the things that I thought could be reformed, I could come up with a plan that would be really good. You've got the best plans. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the problem is, as much as our entire national government and the way things are set up as much as it's descended from these reformers and what they what they tried to do ours is also out of the enlightenment which has a different component to it that is individualism
0: mm-hmm.
2: and so we do have this these two contrasting things right the ability to to reform quickly and efficiently requires some despotism
0: Mm
2: -hmm. right like if we if if we were to actually reform one of our systems and we can name any but uh you know some might argue that we basically live in a um a wage slave system in the united states through methods of debt well we could reform that we could we could do drastic reforms. We could have a year of jubilee and remove debt from everyone. Can you imagine the effect that would have on 80% of the American population? Yeah, it'd be it'd be phenomenal.
1: Whether or not, and we can debate the merits of it, but the, the actual impact would be a phenomenal impact.
2: Yeah, the impact yeah. to people like you and me, to the, many of the people that we know, most of the people that we know, the impact yeah. would be unimaginable. Yeah. But like you said, we don't live
1: like Justinian was the emperor. It's Justinian's law, right? It's his codex. So he says this is how it's going to be now, then that's how it's going to be. Now there's exceptions to that and he still had to work within the system that existed, but largely what he said became law. And and to a lesser extent, with these other reformers, Cleisthenes, Solon, and, and the uh, the Gracchi, you know, they were kind of decentralizing authority, so they were kind of moving the opposite direction. But they were they were also the top of the pile, you know. So they were the ones that were able to say, "This is what we're doing now. We're decentralizing this, you know, and that's the way it is." And so, again, you have to work within the systems that are there, but it was a lot simpler to affect change in that regard. And it's the same thing with the Roman Empire. You know, once Julius Caesar became dictator for life, that changed the game. No, I mean, the, by, and by the time Augustus was done, the Senate was essentially a figure. I mean, they mm-hmm. were a shadow of their former selves. They they could still, you know, try cases and pass laws and stuff. But if the emperor didn't like it didn't really matter and and so you have these things where it's like you have these despots so to speak and they can affect change which is great if the change they're affecting is good but if anybody's seen any empire with an absolute monarch for every one good emperor there's five or six terrible ones like yeah it, it's the the ratio isn't good like it you don't have this long list of noble kings and queens that's a fantasy
2: and, that doesn't exist and even when you do have a good emperor there are people who are going to end up on the wrong side of those policies those reforms mm-hmm. right somebody is going to lose out and that's yeah. where our debate comes down to is um you can't you can't put the burden on an individual to bear. You can't, That that's kind of the, the premise of our whole thing. We can't just put the burden on a person. We can't pick somebody out and say, sorry, this burden is yours now because yeah. A, B, or C, it's your burden. You're the one that's going to lose out because we want to do this thing. That's why there's these great long debates.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And throughout American history, we've seen these great long debates. I don't think we're seeing them today. I think we're seeing a lot of bickering. You know, we have a lot of posturing that that might be the better word posturing, because we have this massive several trillion dollar infrastructure deal, which I think we can agree. Infrastructure might be one of the places that government does have business being in. It's in the Constitution. It's one of the few things that's yeah. Designated to Congress is roads and tolls like that's So so building infrastructure. OK, we're bickering over the amount. Yep. Why the amount? Why not? Like effective. Parts of this bill, why mm-hmm. are we saying, well, one point two trillion is is not enough and two trillion is too much. Well, what's it being spent on? That's that should be the question. And nobody's even debating that. They're debating, well, this is too much. or Who's going to pay for it? And we seem to never care. And you know where I'm going with this.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: When have we ever asked who's going to pay for this war? Yeah. How are we going to pay for this war? How are we going to pay we, for the war we just left? We assume with nothing to show for it. We assume with war
1: that there is no cost too high until the cost becomes too high and then here we are 20 years later pulling out of Afghanistan in a haphazard manner right that's that's how it is and and I'm not going to debate the merits of the war in Afghanistan or Iraq but that's that's our default is there is no cost too high there is no sacrifice too great in war because it's a just cause and and all that it's like yeah but If we gave our military budget the same sort of scrutiny that we're giving our roads and bridges, um, we would have a vastly different foreign policy in the United States. Now, you can argue, is that good or bad? I I don't know. But it would be very, very different. Mm -hmm. Because we wouldn't wouldn't be going, well, yeah, it's okay that that F-35 is $2 billion over budget. No big deal. Because it doesn't work the way we want it to. Yeah, it's in the defense of the country. That's okay. It's like, really? You you don't want to spend money to fix all the bridges in America, but you're okay with overpaying for a bunch of jets that don't really do their job. We're
2: spending half a million dollars to blow up a mud hut that might have a bad person in it. Yeah. But we can't build roads. By the way, the last roads that we really built were in In Afghanistan, and the Taliban used those roads (laughs) to recapture their country.
1: That's a great point. The last infrastructure America built was in Afghanistan. That's a great point.
2: And was used to expedite our exit.
1: But, and I, we're getting a little off <laughs> track, um, but I think, you know, what you, the point you brought up originally, Eric, was, you know, Justinian had this ability to just say, this is the law now, right? In America, we don't. At most, um, if a president presidential candidate wins by a large enough margin, and he can take the House or Senate, they'll say, well, what sort of mandate does the president have, right? That's a big thing. So when Obama won the first term, he won overwhelmingly. And so he had a mandate to instill the programs he liked. And obviously, FDR similarly did that um, with the New Deal biden does not have a mandate he has influence i mean he does have the house and the senate but he doesn't have a mandate in that sense where he can just say this is what we're doing and if you don't like it go pound sand
2: but even but even as far as like okay even if they have mandates even if they control these parts of congress there's still this this kind of posturing the bickering the little petty debates that happen yeah and i don't think I think it's nearly impossible in the United States for there to be reform, like actual reform, because it takes a coalition. It takes people who are genuinely interested in the business of the country. And as we've seen over the past few weeks, there's certain people in Congress and in the Senate who you can tell are are, they're, they're very interested in. I'm probably done with my term after this. And I know I've got jobs lined up for me. I'm going to make a ton of money doing that other stuff. I'm going to show the people who are going to pay me later that I'm going to vote in their favor, but yeah. to actually do reform. I mean, when president Obama worked through the, um, the affordable care act that, that provided care coverage for some people, I wouldn't put it on the, it's not on the plane of a reform that that didn't effectively change our system of healthcare. it's the same and and i'm not i'm not complaining about it or 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 standing for it i'm just saying it 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 has uh, not changed my premiums went up universal health
1: care right single single payer that would be a huge reform
2: yeah even the new deal wasn't a a reform on the, on the same level as Cleisthenes or Solon or the Gracchi brothers or Marius, because the new deal was effectively just a massive infrastructure spending plan. And it had a goal of just putting people to work. And if we're going to put people to work, might as well have something that will benefit us for years to come. Again, Mm -hmm. not quite the reform that, that, that hits me as a real reform. I think The last time we had a major reform was probably like the Civil Rights Act or women's suffrage would be up there. Women's suffrage or the abolition of slavery. Like those were reforms. And in those, even weren't necessarily so much reforms as carrying out the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution to their true meaning a little bit more. It would be a reform to say, you know what? Um, sorry, corporations are not people. They do not get the same rights as people. That would be a reform, yeah, in my mind, because it would drastically change well, the power I, balance, I, I,
1: yeah, that's a great way to put it. I, I think so. But, um, you know, you can look at the things America has that I would say what's interesting, speaking of women's suffrage is that a lot of that started. Low, it started at the ground level, mm-hmm. so to speak, and it started locally. and I think Western states were the first ones that started granting women the right to vote. Wyoming,
2: Wyoming so included it when they became a state,
1: yeah. And so then the state started adopting women's suffrage, uh, granting women the right to vote, starting in the Western states and moving east until eventually it, it became it
2: federal the 18th, federal the 18th law, amendment, yeah. yeah. Well, Jeanette so, Rankin was a member of Congress who voted against World War One before women's suffrage was nationwide. yeah, so yeah, but it starts slow. and and that's what I'm saying' it's, it's a little different,
1: you know, because we look at Justinian, who I think was a good emperor, I, you know how you grade great emperors, but I do think he was a good emperor. Um, and we look at him and we are like, well, if we just had a Justinian, right? He would come in here, he would get things done. And that's what yeah. we love to say, right? That's anytime He'd we also
2: vote... butcher everyone at Lambeau Field.
1: Yeah, he would, <laughs> right? Like, and so that's the problem I have with people who say, well, I want my president who gets things done. And that's not endemic to just one party. I mean, both parties say that all the time. Well, he didn't get anything done, or they didn't get anything done, or look at all the stuff we got done. It's like, yeah, but getting stuff done isn't necessarily good. And if you want to affect change, real change in the United States, you have to affect that, I truly believe, from a a ground level up sort of mentality. I I think that's ultimately how things move in this country. The problem with that is is it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of effort to to make that work, all while having to fight these vast, well-funded interests that don't want to change the status quo. And I will say
2: this, if, if you find yourself in the position where you are up against the establishment and suddenly the other group that you tend to be opposed to joins you. Yeah. Be very wary. You might not be getting done what you think you're getting done. Right. If the, if the blues join your green team and say, yeah, let's take care of that. You're not going to end up getting what you want. Yeah. That's a great point and i think a
1: lot of times in the united states those big interests will posture themselves to seem like they're in alignment with the populist of whatever group that they're trying to to coordinate with say yeah i'm just like you it's like no you're not you're just taking advantage of an interesting situation and you know that's a tale as old as time as we're seeing um regarding the the nikon riots but i I don't know. It's just, it's just interesting because there are so many parallels. And like you said, so much of American and, and democracy in the Western world's foundation comes from the Byzantine Empire, which comes from the Roman Empire, which comes from the Roman Republic, which comes from classical Greek, which has ties to cultures all over the, the Mediterranean. But all of that to say is that you wish... I think with your heart that we can have a Justinian or a Solon come in and make all these sweeping changes, fix everything, and and then we can move on with our lives. But the reality is a lot messier. And I would say, yeah, if Solon came in and democratized America and and granted all this power um, to the people, so to speak, and took it away from the ruling class, but then he leaves. Who's to say the next guy is just like Solon? Who's to say the next guy isn't Jeff Bezos? Right? <laughs> like, yeah. you know, well, and that's I the mean, problem when you when you when you when you cede all power to one person. You really got to hope that one person has got the right interest in, in mind. It's also and even why, then it doesn't always work.
2: It's also why we have a a ruling. I guess it's not a ruling class, but a ruling group, a ruling bureaucracy, because uh, 329 million Americans have no idea how this whole thing really works and runs. We don't know the nuts and bolts of it. Mm. We might know the Constitution, but we don't know how all of the bureaucracy gets things done. Yeah, And so simply removing them and putting you know, whatever other classes, non-ruling classes in power... Uh, they'd make a mess of it, right? Like that's why you need a parliamentarian because even if I got elected to Congress, I'd go in there and not know the rules of parliamentary procedure. That's why they're there. So they can say, oh, no, that's not how we actually do things here. That's why here's how it gets done. When freshman
1: members get elected to Congress, they have to go to orientation so they can learn all the esoteric rules that exist within the House and the Senate. Mm -hmm. And some of those rules are stupid and probably need to be done away with, but you don't, throw everything out in the you yeah. know for the grand goal of efficiency because yeah, efficiency well get rid of the filibuster
2: if you do then it's, it's a, gone
1: it's and- efficient but there are unintended consequences to that yeah. so you can reform things i think you can reform things like the filibuster without getting rid of it yeah because you don't want to just it has a purpose. Sacrifice everything for the sake of efficiency. And it it has a so purpose, much,
2: but it gets abused. Okay. So how do we prevent something from getting abused? That should be the objective there. Um, exactly. Instead, it would be easier just to get rid of it. Cause then we could just push through whatever we wanted. Yes. But one day you won't be in power anymore. And the other yeah. side will do the same thing. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. So, and that's why, yeah, for every one good emperor, you've probably got five or six bad. And for every and I, one, and I
1: would say the same ratio
2: applies to presidents. Yeah, and congressmen. For every one good one, you've got five bad, and that our systems prevent the bad ones from overreaching. It also prevents the good ones from getting really good things done. Yeah, the beauty of our system—it's
1: so beautiful. <laughs> well, I, I I think you still, like I said. Several times already You can affect change You can do good things You can change America for the better But it's not as easy as we all wish And And you have to be patient You do, you have to be patient and
2: steadfast And it's really hard to say When you talk about something like civil rights Or slavery That like Mm -hmm. Patience Because that hurts Because some people never get to experience the fruits of that Yeah But If you're impatient, you may not get it, you know, it it may not work. And so that's the rough, rough edge of the blade, I guess.
0: Yeah,
1: I mean, you could even, you know, talking about slavery, like there was decades of abolitionists fighting against slavery, making it known. Across the north and the south, you know, and going down and preaching, and you know, delivering pamphlets and helping people escape and get them to freedom, decades, decades of work before the dream of of ending slavery in America was finally realized. Like that, and it sucks, and it should never have taken that long, but it did. And while I wish they could have just ended it with the stroke of a pen, um you know, it didn't end, you know, it took a long, long time and it took a lot of blood to get
2: there. But that's how, I mean, unfortunately, in yeah, that case. how ingrained that was in, in yeah. the system. It's funny, you know, I was telling you, I was looking at Giuseppe Garibaldi, the the uh, 19th century Italian yep. rebel and, and revolutionary and all that kind of stuff. And at one point in 1861 in September, the Union reached out to him and said, because he had fought a bunch of battles. He was probably up there with um, with uh, Belisarius as far as how many battles and wars he had fought in. And they said, will you come lead some of our Union armies? And he said, okay, you, I, I will be the general of the armies in the Union, and you need to abolish slavery, like, now. And they weren't ready to do that yet. And uh, even the North was like, uh, yeah, I, I know... I know that's probably the end game, but we can't say that now. Mm-hmm. It's going to be 14 months before we officially say that. And even then yeah. we're a bit iffy on it.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: so how, how um, ingrained and kind of stuck do you have to be to still be digging your claws? And even when you're the North and the union on how ah, we really can't say that yet. Yeah. Like that, that's, yeah, the, poli- the politics don't work in our favor on that. It's- but we, you know, as, as great as many European countries are at quickly reforming things, they've also got a history of a few dictators that come about very quickly, so.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, just a <laughs> couple. So, um, real quick before we go, I, I just want to say, uh, there were some sources we used for for researching this topic, if you guys want to read about it a little bit, you're more a little bit more. Um, Procopius, so if you want a primary source, Procopius, he was a historian during the Byzantine Empire. He was a contemporary of Justinian and, and Theodora, and uh, the the sources that I used were his History of the Wars. Um, you can find this for free online. Fordham.edu uh, has a great library that you can read this. Uh, blue versus green risen by written by the smithsonian magazine it's called blue versus green rocking the byzantine empire um, this article was written in 2012 uh, by mike dash and then if you just want some general info the nika riots on wikipedia is a great resource too so just uh just to give you guys something some uh, additional reading if you want to learn about it because it is a fascinating story
2: and you can still visit the Hippodrome in Constantinople or in, in Istanbul now. And that's, that's amazing.
1: Well, you can visit, they've still got some of the spires, but the yeah. structure itself is gone, but yeah. Right, but Yeah. It's a, yeah. Constantinople is an amazing city. It's just as ageless and wonderful as any other city in the world. And yet for whatever reason, we always think it pales in comparison into ancient Rome. Um, but it's a wonder in its own right. So I don't know. That's all I got, Eric. Do you have anything else?
2: No, that was, that was, um, that was a lot of fun. Nika riots or was, was a fun topic. I really enjoyed getting into this one and
0: Mm -hmm.
2: hopefully we'll have to come up with something just as good for next time.
1: Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you guys all for joining us. We'll see you all next week and uh, like subscribe, follow, and have a great night.